0: Hello and welcome to Nightlight. The words, I want you to think about these words generate, genetics, generation, generous, regenerate, unregenerate, progenitor. All these words may clash together in your head. Uh, But they really are simple if you uncouple them and think about them. What is a progenitor? Well, he's the originator of of a a generating energy. God the Father would be the progenitor. Well, the, the Holy Trinity is the progenitor. You can't separate the function of creation in the Trinity. Some people say, well, the Father thinks that the son speaks it and the spirit makes it happen that I guess that's an acceptable way of illustrating the fact that you have the one God who is the generator of all life I think we probably err when we divide him even to the degree that that illustration divides but that's okay it serves the purpose the progenitor what does he do he generates he generates. What? Well, genes, genetics. We talk about genetics, that which makes us what and who we are. Uh, that produces a generation of people uh, who, begin, who who then generate, and then uh, when when sin takes its place in the picture, we become unregenerate and have to be regenerated, and a regenerated people become generous. They are communicators of that original life. Well, I'm saying all that to say this. Uh, The Bible talks about the eternal, well, this is not a scriptural statement. It, It is a scriptural statement, but it's not... A biblical phrase you're going to find, but it's obviously a biblical principle. What's called the eternal generation of the son. Uh, you, you see a book lying on a table and you see another book lying on top of the book that's lying on the table. Um, you assume somebody put it there, but when it comes to the Trinity, Jesus is eternally generated by the Father. He's not the second book lying on top of the first book that someone set up that way when the Bible talks about Jesus being the only begotten Son of the Father. It's not talking about the idea that one day the Father had a son like a human father. It's, It's painting a picture for human thinking and human grasping of something that is beyond language, um, but it's it's uh, the best we can understand. So when the Bible talks about Jesus being the eternal Son of God, He's eternally generated out of the Father, uh, as has been illustrated in so many uh, past writings, uh, like like the the light of the sun is generated from the sun. You can't separate the light from the sun itself. They're not two separate lights. They are one and the same, and yet they are separate. Well, John tells us, in the beginning was the Lagos, the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined into the darkness, and the darkness could not comprehend it or stop it. The Greek there implies both, that the light, the darkness could not comprehend the light, nor could it stop it. Colossians 1.15, he is the divine portrait, one translation says. I like that. Jesus is the divine portrait, the true likeness of the invisible God, and the heir of all creation, the firstborn. For in him was created the universe of things, both heavenly realm and earthly realm, all that is seen and unseen, every seat of power, every realm of government, every principality and authority, it all exists through him and for his purpose. He existed before anything was made, And now everything finds completion or definition in him. Hebrews chapter 1. So we've got John 1, Colossians 1, now Hebrews chapter 1. God now speaks to us openly in the language of a son, the appointed heir of everything, for through him God created the panorama of all matter and time, through whom he made the ages of time and space, one translation says. The sun is the dazzling radiance of God's splendor, the exact expression of God's true nature, his mirror image. He holds the universe together by the power of his command and moves the universe along toward the fulfillment of its purpose. That's uh, an expanded translation, and I like it. Of the increase of his kingdom and government, there will be no end. That's that same picture. He, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government of all things will rest upon him. His name is called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Of the increase and progress of his kingdom, there will be no end. Hebrews 1, uh, he he moves the universe along toward its fulfillment. Well, all that to say that the eternal generation of the Son from the Father, revealing the heart of God, is then that that idea is carried on by Peter in 1 Peter chapter two verse nine, famous verse. Most of us can quote it, but. Uh, The fact that we can quote it sometimes makes us not really get it because we're so familiar with it. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, King James says, who should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Every one of these phrases needs to be unpacked and understood a lot better than we do. First, you are a chosen generation means that God has generated his life into an unregenerate people and made us regenerate so that we can generate his life in generosity to a dying, starving world. And that, That's what makes us a royal priesthood. A priesthood uh, are those who stand between God and, and people they speak to people on behalf of God and speak to God on behalf of people. The word priest has to do with being a bridge. So we are a, a, a generated, a regenerated generation of people who generate by our priesthood, uh, the reinstitution of a holy nation, the, the, the establishment of a holy nation. And, The peculiar people, you know, we've made so much silly jokes about the word "peculiar" over the years, uh, saying, "Yeah, we're we're peculiar people, all right." Then we name some oddity that is uh, germane to our particular denominational prejudices. Let's get the word straight. It, It the word literally means a special, precious, highly prized, protected possession. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a specially prized precious possession of a people. Why? Well, among other reasons is because you are to show forth, the idea here is to communicate, to spread abroad, the excellencies, the virtues, not just God's praises, that's not wrong, but You are to broadcast, this is the generating generosity, to broadcast out to the rest of the earth and eventually the whole universe God's excellencies, his virtues. The virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see the picture here is this gross darkness full of confusion and darkness and cruelty and evil and all that's bad, and God generating his, his life and goodness and the opposite of all that stuff I just named. But he's not satisfied to generate it, he wants to generate it through you. And so you become a chosen generation, you become a royal priesthood, you constitute part of the holy nation. That's that's the uh, the authority making governing authority in the earth, uh, and you become a precious possession above all other possessions of God, because you manifest this greatness and goodness and light shining through you into the earth. Uh, that uh, that verse is based on two verses, Exodus chapter nineteen verses 5 and 6 where God first ordained Israel to be all that I just named. And then Malachi chapter 3 verse 17 where, where the prophet Malachi uh, keying off that verse in Exodus says uh, he heard the Lord say of those who spoke often one to another of the Lord, they shall be mine in the day when I make up my treasure. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew word there uh, of Segila Segula, is a a place of protected value, treasure. Israel was to have been the light for all the nations. Isaiah chapter forty nine verse six tells us, uh, and that God did not give up the fulfillment of that calling. He came in His own person, in the incarnation. Fulfilled what Israel could not fulfill and did not fulfill. And then the light of the world tells us that we now are the light of the world. We just got through going through the Christmas season uh, where we sang, he comes to make his blessing known far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found, that's as far as the blessing will be communicated. Now we talk about being born again. I mean that that phrase has gotten. I don't know. I, I don't want to sound negative about it. It's it's scripture, but it's gotten some bad, uh, twisted concepts related to it. Uh, I remember our friend Michael Kelly Blanchard, who Michael's one of the best poets, prophetic healing poets and musicians there is, and he told us years ago about singing at a evangelical college where uh, I mean michael's songs are all about life and struggle and heartache and healing and the love of jesus and the presence of jesus but he writes it in poetic language that doesn't hit you as typical lyrics of songs christian songs hits you what's so great about him is he he can he can reach your heart without being preachy so some of his songs don't necessarily sound like quote christian songs they're just songs that are christian something we need we need movies that are not christian movies but movies that are christian and on and on you've heard me talk about that before but the the term born again uh gets a, a bad rap because of the story that I'm telling you about Michael Kelly Blanchard. Michael said that after he finished his uh, his presentation at this Christian college, this young guy walks up to him and introduces himself as a pastor of a church in, in the area and w- wants to talk to Michael about coming to do something at their church. But in the middle of it he actually stopped and said uh, I hope you won't be insulted by this question, but uh You are born again, aren't you? And uh, Michael, who's always wiser and more gracious than I am, answered the guy, you know, yeah, well yes, I'm born again. But the reason the guy wanted to know if he was born again is he went on to explain, your songs didn't talk about being born again. I mean, the guy didn't have any... uh, he didn't have any capacity to discern the spirit of of what Michael was communicating or Michael's spirit. No, he he had to hear pop religious phraseology that comported with his denominational definitions uh, before he would uh, accept Michael's testimony. He couldn't hear the spirit coming through it. His, his spirit didn't witness with Michael's spirit because he was operating not in the spirit but from the neck up looking for denominational catchphrases that would satisfy his uh, preconceived ideas of what it means to be born again actually the scripture the scripture doesn't say you must be born again i mean it does say it but a more a more accurate translation would be born from above or even more accurately born from the origin In other words, this goes right back to the verses that we just got through talking about. The Father generates His life through the Son who generates His life by the Spirit into us who are unregenerate and He regenerates us. And we are born by that generative power. Whether we use the phrase born again or not, for heaven's sakes, or maybe for earth's sakes. I remember, sadly, when Mother Teresa went to be with the Lord, there were several sermons in our area. I suppose this travesty happened in more places than just ours, questioning whether Mother Teresa was born again. According to people who think like that, uh loving Jesus, obeying Jesus, and being Jesus to the poor, uh that's not enough. You've got to use the right denominational catchphrases. And if you don't, hell with you. Uh that is a religious spirit. It's the very opposite of everything that uh the New Testament calls us to do, and you most of you know that. Uh, The term born-again, actually, in in the original text, born-again is not a wrong translation, but most translations will will render it born uh, from above, or the Aramaic translation, which I think is very good, says born from the origin, uh, the original, born from the original purpose of God, uh, the idea of God breathing his life into us and giving us uh, the original purpose of God restored in us. Redemption and restoration. Second Corinthians 5.17, we all can quote it. Most of us can quote it. Uh, if any man is in Christ there's a new creation. The text actually says if any man is in Christ, new creation. There's no there's no connecting uh, article there. It's it's uh, any any man in Christ, new creation, uh, unlike anything that existed before it. Now you and I have probably all had times when we wondered if we were really a new creation. I mean, don't don't we? Uh, don't you get sometimes really upset at yourself and wonder, do I? Do I know the Lord? But Philippians one six, he who has begun a good work in you will finish it. 1 John uh, tells us if if we're born of God, the seed of God remains in us and we cannot go on in sin because the seed of God is the, the, the generative power of God. The genes of God are bringing us more and more into the image and likeness of our Savior. We will eventually be like him and that's our destiny. It's not a goal we work toward it's a destiny. But if we are born of the Spirit, if we are manifesting the new creation, Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 35 through 38, love your enemies and be kind and good. Lend expecting nothing in return and do not despair over what you gave away for nothing is ever lost. Despair of no one. Then your recompense will be great and you will be the sons of the Most High. You will become generators of the original genetics of the Father. That's my commentary. For he is kind and good to the ungrateful and the wicked. So be merciful, sympathetic, tender, responsive, compassionate, even as your Father is sympathetic, tender, responsive, and compassionate. Don't judge, Clay. Give. Be a conduit of blessing, never of curse. Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who curse you. Bless and curse not. Do You see, the way that's worded is very important. It's not just telling you what to do. It's telling you what to not allow. Bless those who curse you and refuse to give place to cursing. Uh, one of my old teachers used to have a funny statement that he would make now and then, that he'd like to bless somebody upside the head with a brick. And we all laughed, we all understood what he was saying, and we've all felt that, haven't we, in some set of circumstances. But the New Testament, joke all jokes aside, doesn't make any place for wanting to bless somebody, quote, Upside the head with a brick. First Peter chapter three verse eight says, "Love each other, be compassionate and courteous, tender-hearted and humble. Never return evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary." See, there it is. Every time this is brought up in the New Testament text, it'll it'll give both sides. See, it's not enough that you want to bless from the neck up, but down in your heart, you're still angry. Uh, you keep blessing from the neck up until your heart catches up with the truth of, of love, praying for their welfare and protection, and t- and truly feeling it. This translation says, "For to this you have been called." What have you been called to? To generate love without mixture, to generate mercy and grace and and care without it being adulterated on another level with the opposite. So it it always says, bless and curse not. It's double, double command. I'm really good at teaching this. I can teach this so well. As heirs of God, you do this. You do this because you're inheriting the generative power of Christ in you. Uh, Born from the origin, the original, you are manifesting the same character. For let him who wants to enjoy life and see good days, keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceit. Let him turn away from wickedness and shun it and do right. Let him search for peace and seek it eagerly. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Everything that I've been talking about up to now, in case you haven't caught on, is about prayer. The most generating power that you can uh, step into to release this kind of blessing and healing power is in prayer. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 12, Paul says, we work hard toiling with our hands. You know, Paul had to work uh, he, he had to make tents. He had to be out there in the culture and quite often was in the rat race of everyday economic life where he would have to encounter some of the meanest people there are. And he says, We, we work hard, toiling with our hands. When people abuse it and insult us, we respond with blessing. Now, are you getting the, the point that this is not because Paul was a little goody two shoes. Sunday school wimp who just always wanted to be nice. That's not what this is about. This is about generating a different spirit that is opposite to the spirit of destruction. There's a, there's a, a militant, uh, plan in this. I come, I come against evil by coming at it in the opposite spirit. James chapter three, verse five. Uh, And you really should read the whole chapter. I won't take the time to read the whole chapter, but it's all very much uh, germane to this topic. So the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it carries great power. One translation says it carries dominion. Just think of how small a flame can set a huge forest ablaze. The tongue is a fire. It can be compared to the sum total of wickedness and is the most dangerous part of our body. It releases a fire that can burn through the course of human existence, burning down through successive generations, one translation says. See, the same concept. This generative power generating through the generations either good or evil. We use our tongues to praise God, our Father, then turn around and curse a person who was made in his very image. Uh, obviously, he's saying that's not the way to do it. But he says, your goal is to eventually reap a harvest of peace. And you do that by uh, reigning in your tongue and training it to speak life and not death. James 5.16 goes on to say, Pray for one another that you may be restored The effectual, earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous person makes tremendous power available that is dynamic in its working. Uh, You might need to just let that verse soak in on you. You will begin to understand when you recognize that prayer has this kind of power. Why, when you set yourself to pray you feel such strange irrational illogical pressure to do anything but pray anything but pray colossians 129 i also labor struggling the greek word there is agonizing struggling according to the energizing of him who energizes me and the dynamic of accomplishing purpose or power. So this word energize is over and over and over. It's translated differently in different texts, maybe just to keep from overusing the word, but in the Greek text it's the same word over and over. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, verse 19, verse 20, chapter 3, verse 7, and chapter 3, verse 20 just just listen to it in him we were made god's heritage and we obtained an inheritance that's second 2 peter 29 again chosen generation royal priesthood we have been chosen and appointed beforehand in accordance with his purpose who works out everything to the to the agreement for the uh, obtaining of the design of his own will now, sometimes these words can stack up on us and we lose the, the, the flow of them and we lose the meaning. But this is actually Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to those who love God and are calling, called according to his purpose. But just like Romans 8.28 cannot be understood on its own, but has to be read with Romans eight twenty three, twenty four, twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven. 24, 25, 26, 27, So this statement cannot just be taken out of context and made to say something it absolutely does not say. Let me read it one more time. In him we were made God's heritage and we obtained an inheritance, that generating power that flows through us. For we have been chosen and appointed beforehand in accordance with his eternal purpose, who works out everything to the agreement with the design of his own will. That does not say God predestined everything that ever has happened or ever will happen. It does not say that when Johnny slips on a banana peel, that God predestined that event before the creation of the world and whatever happens Uh, God already predestined it. I mean, the whole idea is so ludicrous and so opposite to moving forward in the power of the Holy Spirit in reality that it cannot have come from any other source than a religious spirit of deception. Uh, Same with Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to those who love God. Well, let me say this as clearly as I can. All things do not work together for good. If you're going to take that statement by itself without the previous verses and without the context of the whole thought, then you're going to preach false doctrine. Uh, That's That to me is about the same way of thinking as uh, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Just take that verse out of context and just drink till you're snockered. Uh, all things do not automatically work together for good. They only work together for good the context of the verse is what? We don't know how to pray as we ought. So the Spirit himself prays for us with groanings which cannot even be put into articulate speech and he who knows the mind of the Spirit prays the work mind of God prays the perfect will of God for us for the, through the saints, for the saints, and that prayer is setting in motion dynamics that are going to work together for good to bring about God's ultimate good. It doesn't mean everything that happens is good. See, I, I lose my ability to be objective about this because I don't, I can't comprehend having to explain it to people. The, the 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 little child who was kidnapped and and found murdered three miles from her home uh, that that didn't happen because God had a reason. I mean, I hear people say these phrases. They're religious phrases. They're not biblical. They're not they're not even logical. Everything happens for a reason. No, everything does not happen. For a reason. That horrible scenario I just uh, gave example of didn't happen for a reason. Now let me, let me stop here and, and help you understand. I know most of you already understand this. The, the reasoning that we look for in evil is a misguided search. You cannot ever find a reason for evil you can find a reason as to how God turned the circumstances and brought good out of an unreasonable evil. But if you're trying to find reasoning in evil, it's a contradiction because evil by its very nature is without reason. There is no rhyme or reason to the evil of evil. And so when we start wrestling with, well now, There has to be some reason. There's got to be some reason. And I understand that. I want to say this carefully for the sake of those who might be going through real grief in your life and you've suffered some loss and it was a tragedy, maybe a terrible accident or a a, a mindless, meaningless disease has cut the life short of someone you love. And so what you end up doing is to, to to find reason for it you have to make god the author of the cancer or god the author of the horrible crime when you do that you are speaking insanity god is not the author of murdered raped children god is not the author of cancer God is not the author of any of these things. God is the author of the good that can be somehow worked through that. But when we get into this this um, terminology and this tug-of-war over what God causes and what God allows and what God turns for good... It's understandable to wrestle with those questions, but the moment you make God the author of evil, you are in blasphemy. So Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. Yes, that's true, but only in the proper context. Don't take that out of context and use it as a band-aid to stick on unfathomable wickedness and evil. Uh, I'm going to be pounding this in other sessions to come. Uh, remember, I told you we we can't fix all this in uh, one one session. You're not going to get this settled uh, as a soundbite. It's going to take really some some uh, in investment. So I want to I want to read this again, and then go on to the other verses. Paul, uh, is, or he's praying in verse uh, 17 of this chapter. Paul is praying. As a result of this statement that he just made, he's going to pray. And what's he going to pray for? For the flood of light. And what is light? It's the energy of God. We'll have more to say about that in a minute. Um, In him, we were made God's heritage and we obtained an inheritance. For we have been chosen and appointed beforehand in accordance with his purpose, who works out everything to the eventual agreement with his design. Well, his design was never rape or or cancer or any of those other evil things. He works to bring about the good through them and in spite of them. Okay, chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says, Paul Paul is praying for a flood of light to pour out on all those he's praying for. That their eyes will be flooded with light so they can fully understand, grasp, experience, receive, and give out again the immeasurable and unlimited greatness of his power. In and for us who believe, as demonstrated in the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead, and seated him at the right hand of power, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, and has put all things under his feet, The feet are the lowest part of the body, by the way. So the smallest, youngest member of the body of Christ still has all this under his feet in prayer when he prays, or when she prays. Verse 7 of chapter 3 says, I was made a transmitter of this gospel by God's free grace, which was bestowed on me by the effective energizing of his power. I am the least of all, and I have this, Paul says. So then in verse 8, he says, To me, I'm the least of all, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the unending boundless riches of Christ. Also, to enlighten all men and make plain to them the salvation of all men, The mystery kept hidden through the ages and concealed until now. What is the mystery? The mystery now revealed is this, that through the church, the complicated, many-sided wisdom of God in all its infinite variety and innumerable aspects might now be made known to the angelic beings in the heavenly realm. Did you get that? The mystery that's been hidden, that's now revealed, is that through the church, the people of God, we are the classroom for the principalities and powers. Now, when Paul says that the principalities and powers are learning as they watch us, that they're learning, they're you know, Paul, uh, or Peter says that the angels desire to look into salvation. They don't understand it. They are watching us. And I, I think Paul is referring to principalities and powers here. I think he's referring to all of them, both the, the, uns, the, the, the unholy, the fallen principalities and powers, and the unfallen principalities and powers They are watching the many-sided, complicated wisdom of God in all of its infinite varieties and innumerable aspects. What is that talking about? I know that's a lot of words. It's talking about how God makes all things work together for good. This verse is exactly addressing that same concept how does god what does god have to do to make all things work together well if you just say god all things just work together then you have a a god who just uh, does evil things because he's got this nifty way he's going to weave that into other things and it just gets to be a confused theological mess and people don't have an idea at all how to how to pray how to trust such a god how to how to believe in the goodness of such a God? Uh, so every now and then, God just has to do some terrible things in order to show his his uh, hatred for sin. So he just kills a a, a few people uh, in a few car wrecks here or there. and there, and but that's okay. Everything happens for a reason, and all things work together for good. That's lunacy. That's utter religious lunacy. God, we'll we'll unpack all this more later, but the mystery that is now revealed to the principalities and powers is this. Through me and you, when we pray, when we cry out to God and we trust him in the face of irrational, nonsensical evil, God sets in motion the many-sided wisdom in all of its infinite varieties and innumerable aspects, that work to bring about ultimately his original intention, which was never evil in any form. Now the fact that the angels desire to look into this, you know I'm always moved almost to tears when I think about this. When you look at the, the Ark of the Covenant, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant are the, the cherubim. And what are they doing? Some people say, well, they're guarding the mercy seat. I don't think they're guarding the mercy seat. God doesn't need to be guarded. They are kneeling down in worshipful adoration of the mercy seat where the blood of the Lamb is placed, and they are looking at it in great awe and wonder, desiring to understand it. That's what's going on there. Our lives are the teaching classroom for the angels. Through our lives, the angelic realm is being taught of the grace and the heart of God through us. And as they watch us, watch God in the dark when we don't have any way of understanding what he's doing, but we trust his goodness and we trust his wisdom and we certainly don't attribute to him any work of evil. They watch that, and they are being transformed and and, and trained by it. Uh, The wicked are being rebuked by it, and the holy angels are being trained by it. After they're trained, we who will eventually rule over the angels, Paul says, will take their place. I think we will probably take the place of the fallen angels and uh fill the the role that they used to fill, but far beyond that, as uh, rulers and heirs and co-heirs with our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why everything you go through don't waste your sorrow, I told you a few months ago. Don't waste your sorrow, but let it be spun uh, straw spun into gold, as you trust God in the face of these unanswerable struggles, you trust God's character. Verse 11 through 13 says this mystery, this training that God's doing through the church uh, for the principalities and powers, this is in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in effect in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord, in whom, because of our faith in him, we have boldness and free access, the Aramaic text says, free access as kings an unreserved approach we have to God with freedom and without fear. So I ask you not to lose heart or become despondent or fearful over what I'm suffering on your behalf. Rather, you should glory in it. So Paul says in verse 14, for this reason, for what reason? Well, for all the reason he's just been talking about. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the entire family in heaven and earth receives its identity. Family and father. Uh, the Greek word for father is pater. The word for family is patria. See, God, the Father, has generated his, his genetics into us. And so uh, all families receive their identity from God the Father but those of us who have received the birth of the Spirit now generate that original intention of God into the earth for the salvaging of the whole world and so what do we pray that God would unveil Paul says I pray for you that God will unveil within you the unlimited riches of his glory and affection for you until supernatural strength floods your innermost being with His divine might and explosive power, I mean, Paul can't get away from this. These words: explosive power, generated energy, uh, resurrection life, and it's always connected to prayer, whether you feel it or not. Whether, whether you've, uh, and we'll talk more later about the the weird stuff that can come against your mind when you're trying to pray. Uh, that nothing should make you more aware of the validity of your prayers as being detrimental to the devil than the way he attacks you when you try to pray or the stupid stuff that will come to your mind or the silly ideas of things you ought to go be doing that you didn't think to do all day long until it was time to pray. Then all of a sudden these foolish things become absolutely important. And they're they're not obviously. They're just lies of the devil to keep you from praying. We pray. Paul says, "I pray that God would unveil within you the unlimited riches of His glory and affection for you." But see, Paul knows you need prayer to know the love God has for you, because when you try to pray, one of the things you always get hit with is self condemnation, just a litany of things you've done wrong that make your prayers not uh, not effective because you're such a slugworm. Verse 17, then by constantly using your faith, the life of Christ will be released deep inside you, and the resting place of his love will become the very source and root of your life. Verse 18 and 19, then you will be empowered to discover with every holy one, what they experience, the great magnitude of the astonishing love of Christ in all of its dimensions, how deeply intimate and far-reaching is his love, how enduring and inclusive it is, endless love that is beyond measurement, that transcends our understanding. This extravagant love pours into you until you are filled to overflowing with the fullness of God, Never doubt God's mighty power to work in you and accomplish all this. See, you need to read this over and over and over until you really get a a grasp on what it's saying. He will achieve infinitely more than your greatest request, your most unbelievable dream, and exceed your wildest imagination. He will outdo them all. For his miraculous power constantly energizes you. Now we offer up to God all the glorious praise that rises from every church in every generation through Jesus Christ and all that will yet be manifested through time and eternity. Amen. Let me tell you something about the manifold wisdom of God that I referred to a while ago. That word manifold, I've, I've, I've referred to this in previous nightlights, but that word manifold wisdom, that Greek word, is only found one time in the New Testament, and it's only found one time in the Septuagint translation of the uh, Hebrew scriptures. And it's found in the book of Genesis, and where would you find it? Well, you find it in reference to Joseph's many-colored coat. Manifold wisdom, many-colored coat of Joseph. What do you see in Joseph's story that relates to this whole issue we've been wrestling with? Did God purposely move on the hearts of Joseph's brothers uh, with murder and with malice and with cruelty and with lies and deception, did God move on them in order to uh, set up the scenario that would send Joseph into uh, first into the pit, then out of the pit into slavery, and then out of slavery into more slavery, then out of that slavery into prison. The Bible tells us that all this happened when when joseph confronts his brothers remember that when joseph confronts his brothers after they've done all this he said you meant it for evil but god meant it for good that many lives may be preserved you don't take that story and say everything happens for a reason and make god the author of the wicked behavior that produced the scenario of the story God's sovereignty does not make God responsible for evil. I know I've said this so much, you're, maybe you're tired of hearing it, but let me tell you something. You're going to start, I hope you'll start catching it when you hear other Christians make these silly, silly remarks in the face of some tragedy. Everything happens for a reason. All things work together. No. God saw no reasoning going on in the minds of Joseph's brothers. But God's reasoning was set in motion to turn circumstances to eventually bring about God's intention. But what was God's intention? The saving of life, not the destruction of life. But to hear some folks talk well, sometimes God's in a mood to kill people, you know, and He just has to do that. But that's okay because whatever God does is right. It's just it's a it's 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 pagan it's pagan religion, dolled up to look like uh, reformed theology, or whatever t- term you want to put on it. Uh, and so, the many sided wisdom of God, the manifold wisdom of God is pictured in this story as the many-colored coat of Joseph but what is it what is it covered in it's covered in blood it's torn and ripped it it's covered in 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 blood in sessions ahead we're going to look at how paul talks about the suffering that he's in and the tragedy that he faces And he's not put off by it because he trusts in the wisdom of God and he knows God is not the author of the evil, but he's the author of the great resurrected good that will come out of the terrible tragedies. And if you don't understand that, you will not be able to pray in faith, you will not be able to rest in love, and you will not be able to hope in confidence. You will always wonder, you know, what is, uh, a lot of things people always know not always but often they'll they'll think what did i do what did i do to deserve this i'm being punished that's the whole point of the book of job job job's comforters quote unquote say you know job you're being punished there's no doubt about it when you get honest about your sin then, you know, maybe God will relent because you finally fessed up and admitted your evil. But we know that bad things only happen to people who deserve it and good things happen to those who walk in right, righteousness. And Job stands his ground against that foolishness. And when it's all said and done, God says to Job, I want you to pray for these men for they have not spoken what is right about me. They have spoken wrongly of me. What had they been saying? That God only lets bad things happen to bad people, and God only blesses those who are without sin and uh, have no struggles. That's, that's the evil falsehood that God was rebuking in those men. Why did he want Job to pray for them? Well, for the reason that we've been talking about. God, God wanted to generate through Job a generous spirit of reconciliation toward these men who had no generosity at all had no heart at all for for mercy and grace and love and uh, they just wanted to argue doctrine and stand on their uh, superstitious false religion like a whole bunch of christians i run across now and then so the manifold wisdom of god is seen in Joseph's bloody coat because that wasn't the end of the story God, the de- the devil meant it for evil Joseph's brothers meant it for evil God turned it for good Father, I pray now for every man and woman and boy and girl listening to this message I pray uh, that, that the Holy Spirit would take everything that I've bumbled my way through here and let it produce life and understanding and wisdom and and energy for good in our prayer life. That we would absolutely resist, just like we resist the temptation to to steal or lust or lie or blaspheme, we would resist any temptation to make evil uh, be laid at your doorstep, that you are the cause of it and Whatever happens is your will, so uh sera, sera, whatever will be will be, and this this uh Islamic false doctrine about you that has crept into the church and uh rendered us uh insecure, confused and prayerless. Father, just purge it from us and let your light flow through us and let us be a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a a special treasure to you who speak often one to another of you and you are able to look at us and say, they will be mine in the day when I make up my treasure, my inheritance. Let us walk in that inheritance now, Father, in our prayer life. In Jesus' precious name. Thank you, Lord. Amen.